This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Matthew DeBoer discusses his new book, Return to Glory, the story of Ford's revival and victory and the toughest race in the world. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot hits the highlights of Book Expo and BookCon. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. Uh, we weren't here last week. We didn't see it last week. But nope. there's certainly this week, there's very little movement in both hardcover fiction and hardcover nonfiction. Correct. Uh, we, we, I will say we do have a new number one. Um, this is someone who's been in the news and at BEA, Al Franken, Giant of the Senate. By Al Franken. Uh, we say in our review, this is excellent, insightful memoir. Comedian turned Senator Franken recalls his unlikely path to public service. We say, not surprisingly, Franken is quite a raconteur, and he tells the story of his remarkable life and times with a sense of humor that is always irreverent and often self-deprecating. One thing is no joke, however, he's very serious about his job representing the people of Minnesota. So that's, that's at number one. Not surprising. Then at number three, another book that does and surprises, David Sedaris. Uh, starred review, Theft by Finding Diaries from 1977 to 2002. And uh, we say Sedaris, uh, humorist of you know, This American Life in the New Yorker, displays the raw material for his celebrated essays with these scintillating excerpts from his personal journals. We say, but Sedaris's storytelling, even in diary jottings, is so consistently well-crafted and hilarious that few will care whether it's embroidered. Now, this is, uh, he's, he'd been accused of just like... Uh, embroidering just a little bit here and there but anyway uh he's a good storyteller so number three number 13 we have from uh by mike lee written out of history the forgotten founders who fought big government uh, the book jacket says uh we don't have a review of this some of america's most important founders have been erased from our history books and in this fight to restore the true meaning of the constitution their stories must be told and mike lee is going to tell the stories of Aaron Burr, Senator Mike Lee, and uh, several others. So, And that's what we have on the nonfiction. What about fiction? Well, in fiction, we also have a new number one, and that's Come Sundown by Nora Roberts. Sold a nice 42,000 copies mm. right out of the gate, according to NPD BookScan. Uh, and uh, obviously, Nora Roberts is a longtime mega bestseller for her uh, romantic fiction, literary fiction, and also as J.D. Robb, uh, her thrillers. And uh, in this case, this is one of the family stories with romantic elements. Uh, it's set in western Montana on a family ranch and the story of how uh, a young woman ran away to make her fortune in Hollywood uh, tried to come back three years later but was captured and made prisoner and now the estate is a thriving dude ranch and uh, at last she manages to make her way back there and dredge up all sorts of mm. old family business. Uh, we say what makes the novel most engaging is Robert's 
ability to suffuse her story with rich details of one family life, one family's life, as well as sizzling doses of romance and mystery. Uh, they announced a one million copy first printing. I don't think they're going to have any trouble selling that out. Wow. Yeah. Uh, is that usual for Nora? Yeah, it is. That's okay, pretty pretty typical. Wow, um, and and you know it's a hardcover original, right? Um, but uh, she's got her millions and millions of fans, and she's an amazing presence. Uh, yeah, even if you just see her yeah. speak a few words at an event or whatever, she's unforgettable. Uh, I have never heard anyone so much as hint at the idea that she might be getting in ghostwriters or or farming out her work in any way. Mm. She clearly writes every single one of her books, and they're all really good. Wow. She's just a spectacular talent. Uh, moving down a little bit to number three, Nighthawk, a novel from the Numa Files by Clive Cussler with Graham Brown. Um, Cussler has uh, no problem with bringing in co-authors, and uh, this is the 14th book in his Numa Files series. Uh, Numa is the National Underwater and Marine Agency. Cussler does love his divers, mm. and uh, you know, this is a pretty straightforward Clive Cussler thriller involving Russian and Chinese forces chasing uh, the, the good old Americans. And we say tension builds as our heroes race to save the planet. So, yeah, wow. high stakes. At number seven is Baron and Luthien by J.R.R. Tolkien. That's not a name that we see on the bestseller list very often these days. Um, right. But uh, this is edited by his son, Christopher Tolkien. And uh, we say that uh, the younger Tolkien successfully aims this latest version of Baron and Luthien's tale at two distinct audiences. So this is a love story from the first age of Middle-earth, drawn from the Silmarillion, mm. and uh, you know, this is tied into The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It's part of the sort of extended universe that J.R.R. Tolkien created for right. them. Uh, and uh, so in addition to the story itself, uh, Christopher Tolkien takes a scholarly look at how his father altered the tale over the years. Um, so if you haven't read it before, we say you should skip the preface, which is full of spoilers, go straight to the original version, but which is about the love of a, a mortal man for an elf maiden mm. um, and uh, and then really dig into the, the scholarly aspects of it. So, uh, you know, a really strong volume with a surprisingly broad audience as uh, shown by its position at number seven on our bestseller list. Really not too bad. And finally, um, down at number 15, You Will Pay by Lisa Jackson. Uh, we say this thriller is overly long. Um, right. It's uh, four, four people uh, who disappear from a religious camp in Oregon, um, and one is found alive but with a knife lodged in his back. And then 20 years later, a jawbone washes up on the camp's beach and reopens the missing person's case. We say in our review that too many twists and turns add nothing to the narrative, which eventually builds to a surprising but contrived ending. Mm. Uh, but Jackson certainly has her fans, and uh, yeah, I'm sure that they will not be too disappointed. Great. And that's what we've got on the fiction list. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Matthew DeBoard tells us about the 50-year legacy of Ford's GT40 car. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Yvette Johnson, the author of The Song and the Silence, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Matthew DeBoard in the office with us. His new book is Return to Glory, the story of Ford's revival and victory in the toughest race in the world. Matt, I'm so glad you could join us. Glad to be here. 
So um, tell us a little bit about the history of Ford's GT40 car, which is at the heart of this story. Okay, so back in the 1960s, uh, Henry Ford II decided that he wanted to buy Ferrari. And they got pretty far in the discussions until Enzo Ferrari, who you know was the founder of Ferrari, uh, got... What he learned was that Ford wanted to kind of take control of the racing program. And Ferrari has racing at its very core. I mean, Enzo started the company to make race cars and later started selling road cars. And that's how we have these you know sexy and exotic Ferraris today. But Enzo didn't want any piece of this, so the deal was off. And it made Henry Ford so mad, Henry Ford II, so mad that he decided he was going to take it to Ferrari in their backyard at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which is a, probably the most famous endurance race in the world. So they develop a car, called the, which ultimately winds up being called the GT40, uh, and they don't have a whole lot of success the first couple of years, but in 1966, they come in there with a whole bunch of cars, uh, and they, they just take it to Ferrari, and they win the race one, two, three. And that's it for Ferrari. Ferrari's pretty much out of Le Mans after that. And this whole story has taken on a kind of mythic, legendary quality. And it's a big deal for Ford because, you know, it's not like they kept making the GT40 forever after that. They did it, and then they stopped doing it. And and in in the early early to mid-2000s, they did kind of an homage version of the car. And then in 2015... As you know, a year before the 50th anniversary of the 1966 win, they decided to do a whole new GT, and they pulled the cover off of the road car uh, at the 2015 Detroit Auto Show. And then about six months later, they pulled the cover off the race car, and they said, "We're going back to Le Mans." And uh, you know, that was where that's where the story gets started, basically. And what made the, the this car special? What was it about it? The GT40. Yeah. Well. You know, it, it, at that time, Le Mans was the most exciting race in the world because what would happen, it, one of the most exciting races in the world, certainly, but very unique in the sense that it's run for an entire 24-hour period, and the manufacturers would go in there and they would use it to validate uh, the, the robustness of new technologies. And the cars were just getting faster and faster and faster and faster. Uh, and so Ford came in having you know no really meaningful experience in this kind of European sports car endurance racing thing. Uh, and the car, you know, the first versions of the car didn't work out so well. I mean, they didn't finish the race mm-hmm. for a couple of years. Um, and then Carroll Shelby, who's a famous name in racing uh, and in the car world, sort of took over the program. And they wound up developing the, the technologies that would go ultimately into the car that won. Uh, so it's just got a gigantic truck engine in it basically making an enormous amount of horsepower and the car itself was incredibly low it's called the gt40 because it's only 40 inches high wow right so tall that's people, like the height of my toddler yeah wow. exactly right? <laughs> you can't believe how small it is either when you stand next to it like when you see the old footage of the race and you see the cars going around you think well that's a powerful and impressive looking thing and it was a bonkers fast car but um i got to see the car that actually finished second, not the winning car, but the car that finished second, um, recently when I went out to Utah to drive the new GT, the new Ford GT. And um, I just, it just, it stuns you how small it is. It's very hard to get in and out of. A tall person can't sit in it because their head, they, they, you can't close the top of the car. So and, you had to have a jockey sized driver. 
All race car drivers are most race car drivers are actually pretty small guys. Ah, right. They're, you, you stand. They're my size. I'm five seven, and you stand next to. I stand next to a lot of people, and I feel like you know a shrimpy guy. I stand next to a race car driver sometimes. I feel like I'm towering over this man, and they're all little. You know, they're all skinny, wiry right, little guys right. for the most part. Sometimes you see older drivers who've you know gone to seed a little bit, and they're you know beefier dudes. But for the most part. You know, uh, like, you know, fighter pilots and race car drivers are typically little guys. So um, I was going to ask why you got into covering the, the race car world, but maybe now I have uh, an answer. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all, they all, they all. It's funny because they actually do. I mean, I'm not any kind of awesome driver or anything like that, but I sort of, you know, I feel like sometimes I, I could pass for a race car driver just because of my size, you know, so I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable around, around those dudes. So um, really, what was it that drew you to covering the automotive industry and to this particular story? Uh, well, that's a two-part answer to that. The first thing was that uh, I had written, I had a sort of interesting, you know, um, varied career in journalism up until my early 30s. Uh, so I had covered all kinds of stuff. I'd been a freelance writer. I'd, uh, you know, worked in publishing a little bit. And I'd written about architecture and art and just, I'd write about anything. Uh, and I wrote, wrote for some early internet publications. I reviewed a lot of books. I reviewed for PW at one point and did PW interviews, in fact. And then we had a, my wife and I had our first child and I took some time off, left my job. I was at Wine Spectator at the time. And I left that job, wrote the book, um, took care of my daughter, and I needed a job coming out of that. Uh, so I had a friend who called me up and said, hey, would you like to work in advertising? And I said, well, I like to work in advertising. That sounds great. You know, because I always thought advertising was a wonderful, cool profession. My dad had been sort of in marketing when I grew up. So, so we had car clients. So I got this huge dive into General Motors and Toyota, and I learned a lot about the business side. And so when I came out of that um, and decided to return to journalism, uh, it was around the time that the financial crisis was happening. Uh, we were living in Los Angeles, and Slate was starting up something called The Big Money, which was a finance site that they did for a while. Uh, Jim Ledbetter, who was the the editor at the time, uh, you know, asked me to blog about the car business. And you know, at that moment, everything was going completely to pieces. GM was GM was being bailed out and going bankrupt, being bailed out and going into bankruptcy. Chrysler was being bailed out and going into bankruptcy. And so I was just writing about that every day, a couple times a day started a blog called Shifting Gears. Uh, and so my calling card up to that point had been, you know, I just, I know, I, as a journalist, I knew a lot about the business side. I'd worked on the business side. I understood how the car companies functioned. I had good relationships with a lot of them. Um, and that led me to the business side of the book. So the book is sort of two books in one. It's a business book about Ford and Detroit's comeback from the financial crisis. And then there's also this racing story. The racing story you know, I was I was drawn to just because of the history from 1966, and because it just it's just exciting. I mean, motorsports is just incredibly exciting. If you go to a car race, the cars are going around, they're going crazy fast. The race car drivers are really brave. It's much safer than it used to be, but it's still not completely safe. For example, if you watch the Indy 500 this year, there was a spectacular crash mm -hmm. where this car got airborne, it flew through the air, it caught on fire, it crashed, it rolled over a couple of times, and the guy, you know, he was very slightly injured. But if that had happened. 30 years ago, yeah, he probably would have been dead. Uh, and that happened routinely in the, in the 60s. Uh, when, Le Mans was a very dangerous race for a long time. Um, and there's a bit of, bit of that in the book. So it's, I don't know. It's, I've always been a try. I've always liked, you know, fast cars, beautiful cars, um, even before I started writing about them. So it was just kind of a, I, I feel like, you know, I have, I have a little bit of a natural affinity 
for just that whole world. You know, it just makes sense to me on a kind of, I don't know, organic level. So let's talk. You just uh, mentioned about Ford and the motor industry. Uh, Let's talk about that because this is really, in ways, this car is what resuscitated it. Um, At least that's the point you make, I think, uh, in part. So tell us about, give us a history of Ford. Take us back as long as you want, but I know we're going to focus a little bit on on the uh, uh, financial crisis. Well, so so Ford is the American car company, right? Henry Ford starts the company uh, back in the early 20th century. Uh, Racing is at the core, in many ways, of the Ford story because the way that Ford, Henry Ford, was able to raise money, he had a couple of unsuccessful ventures in the auto business. Back when being, uh, you know, trying to start a car company was sort of like trying to do a startup technology firm now. It was the Wild West in Detroit back in the early part of the 20th century, this new thing, replacing the horse, right? You know, so... um, uh, Henry has a stages a race, uh, and he wins the race against you know a very experienced race car driver at that point in a car that Henry Henry Ford had built, and that got him some money to start the Ford Motor Company. And then you know we have mass production, we have the Model T, um, we have the creation of the American auto industry in a lot of respects. Um, now Ford's always kind of an up and down company. Ford's a family business. You always have to remember this about Ford, you know, and the family is always involved. So, you know, when the Le Mans campaign happened in the 60s, that was Henry Ford II, so direct descendant of, of, of Henry Ford himself. Uh, you've got Edsel Ford in there. You've got, you know, there's mm-hmm. Ford, the Ford family is a big part of, of, of every Ford story. And they were a part of my story because we had Henry Ford, uh, or uh, Bill Ford, rather, uh, Henry Clay Ford, uh, William Clay Ford, excuse me, William Clay Ford, who was the CEO of the company. At one point, he's now the chairman of the company, Bill Ford. Uh, Henry Ford III, who's the great-great-grandson of Henry Ford, who runs Ford Performance Marketing and uh, was involved with the promotion of the, of the car. Um, so, in any case, Ford, you know, is g- typically been the number two U.S. car maker behind, behind General Motors. Um, and the industry was, was doing very, very well after having done not so well in the 70s and 80s. You know, when, when the gas crisis happened in the 70s, um, Detroit was ill-prepared Ill for this. And they went from having control of most of the market uh, to losing control of a lot of the market when the Japanese came along and later the Germans and these, these, these import brands. Uh, you know, with better cars in a lot of ways, better fuel economy, that whole, that whole story. Um, and what sort of saved Ford and GM and, and, and the other players in Detroit was the SUV boom in the, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And Ford in particular did really, really well in SUVs. Uh, but when the bottom fell out of that and we started to see a situation where gas prices were spiking, um, you, you saw some vulnerabilities exposed in Ford's business and in Detroit's business in a larger sense. Um, and, you know, they just, they just started losing a lot of money. And at this time, Bill, Bill Ford was the CEO. A guy named Jack Nasser had been CEO. They'd made some ill-advised business decision. the company was, decisions. The company was not you know, in particularly competitive shape. And everybody was worried because it's a cyclical business about what's going to happen when the sales go away. So when sales are great and you're selling a lot of trucks, it's terrific. Ford always has a pickup truck called the F-150, which has mm. been the best-selling vehicle in America forever. You know, yeah. it's, only, it's never it's never not the best selling vehicle, so it's a cash cow for the company. But nonetheless, you know they had vulnerabilities in other areas, and uh, they hire a guy from uh, Bill Ford SEO realizes that he can't run the company; he's losing money like crazy. So he got he's got to get somebody in to fix stuff, a turnaround guy. So he calls up, he gets in contact with a Boeing executive named Alan Mulally, 
who had been responsible for the um, the 777 uh, aircraft in a lot of ways at Boeing. Real successful guy there. He takes the job at Ford. He immediately recognizes that their balance sheet is no good for writing out a downturn. So he says, you know what? Let's just mortgage everything. Hmm. So he borrows uh, $25 billion against everything Ford has to prepare them for what he thinks is going to be you know, a rough ride in the future. He does not know at the time that the financial crisis is going to happen, mm-hmm. and it's going to destroy GM. It's going to destroy uh, Chrysler. So you know, Chrysler had been a bit of a basket case up to that point. It had been owned by um, Daimler and then picked up by a private equity firm called Cerberus Capital Management. GM had been going through restructuring after restructuring after restructuring. Um, had a lot of debt. Uh, the whole industry was just kind of in a mess. Uh, so, uh, you know, Mulally makes what it now we recognize as this really critical decision to borrow a lot of money that enabled Ford to ride out the crisis, not take any bailout money, not go bankrupt. Hmm. But it wasn't like they didn't suffer. Right. You know, the stock fell to less than two bucks a share at one point. It was very questionable in the minds of people who were observing the industry whether it was ever going to be able to come back as robustly as it had in the past. Um, as it turns out, it roared back. You know, we've had two years of record sales. Ford had two years of record profits in uh, 2015 and 2016. Uh, so the business is really better than it's ever been uh, in the U.S. and Detroit's back and back big time. Um, but, you know, it was pretty pretty gnarly period uh, for Ford. And if you were around back then uh, to observe it happening, you just didn't know. You just didn't know from day to day whether the industry was going to survive. Right. You know, it was hard to tell. And you interviewed many people involved, including Alan Mulally. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to to meet the people who got Ford through this crisis. You know, I didn't get to interview Alan. Oh. Alan. Alan gracefully declined to participate in the project. Alan is such a gentle, wonderful human being that he turned me down mm. in a way that was nicer than I feel like I'd ever been turned down before. Right? I was able to talk to other executives in the industry to kind of you know fill in for Alan's. And you kind of. You know, Alan's story is so well known that, um, that m- you know, my not being able to talk to him was not anything that was going to, you know, uh, undermine the book. Uh, but luckily, I had uh, had a long, you know, relationship talking to Ford anyway, prior to the book coming along. What I had to do on the business side, so what I had to do was be able to get people to talk to me on the uh, the racing side. Right. And on the, on the, and the, and the people in, in Ford who were taking, who were seeing Ford through this, you know, racing season, the, the, the GT racing program. And um, that was great. I mean, I got to talk to, you know, race car drivers. I got to talk to Ford race car drivers and also people who had experience racing at Le Mans. Um, I talked to, you know, people at Ferrari. I talked to people uh, who were, um, you know, building the car, developing the the race. They developed the race car and the road car simultaneously. And you have to do this because uh, there has to be a road car version for this particular type of sports car racing. There has to be a road car version of the race car or it doesn't work. Mm. So at the same time they were doing the road car, they were also doing the race car. And uh, it, was, it was, I mean, it's a fascinating story of like kind of top secret development. One of my, one of my favorite stories from the whole book is when um, I talked to Maury Callum, who was the overseer of the design process for the car. And what had happened was uh, they had wanted to come back to Le Mans in 2015 for the 50th anniversary of the Mustang, Ford Mustang. And they were going to do a race car version of that car uh and they had a project name for it It was called project silver and they're working on it and they it got it got killed somehow at ford and so the when the gt program came along they decided that they didn't want that one to get killed too and they were going to need to work on getting some executive buy-in because it's an expensive project Mm -hmm. for a very small 
piece of the business. You know, dramatic, but small. So um, they did it all in secret in this sort of, you know, former storage room. And they didn't mm-hmm. tell anybody about it. And there was no, like, we are making the 4GT. There wasn't anything like that. You know, it was, it was sort of top secret. They didn't even have a, they didn't have a, they had, you know, the cards you use to get in and out of doors at, you know, modern office buildings, you know, mm-hmm. the pass cards. They didn't have that. They had, a, like, an old school key. So they had to lock and unlock the door to get in and out of the design studio. And they could only show the car on the weekends. Um, so that was, in a lot of ways, the kind of coolest part of the whole story was just how incredibly secretive the whole process was, how under wraps they kept it, and then how jaw-dropping it was when they revealed the car in um, 2015 because nobody saw it coming. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Matthew DeBoard, author of Return to Glory. Um, and you traveled around a lot also to to research yeah. this. Tell us about some of the places you went, including finally Le Mans. Well, so I had, you know, I made, I had made n- numerous trips to Detroit over the years when I was in advertising. I went up there all the time. And then, uh, you know, I, as a journalist, I visited uh, Dearborn. Uh, so I knew, I knew my way around Detroit. I mean, I stayed at the Renaissance Center a couple of times, which is where um, uh, GM World Headquarters is. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I don't think, I think I made one, you know what I did? I did make one reporting trip to, um, to uh, Detroit, but it kind of coincided with the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, so I was going anyway. Uh, the real exciting part was obviously going around to the races, which started in uh, Florida in at the beginning of 2016 with the, what's called the Rolex 24, which is a 24-hour race that's run in, in Daytona at a NASCAR track, a gigantic NASCAR track, and the cars can go really, really fast. So they have a, they have a, a tri-oval that's banked, and the cars can go very fast on the banked part of the, that, tr- that part of the track. And then they have a road course where the cars have to go, you know, around twisty, windy kind of configuration. And um, that, was, that was interesting because up to that point, everything had looked like it was going very, very well with the racing program. And, in fact, one guy at Ford, a guy named Raj, Raj Nair, who was the chief technology officer and was kind of overseeing the technical aspects of the car, uh, in one of the videos that they put out, he said, you know, it just, it just feels like it's going too well. Everything's just going too well with this car. And as it turned out, that was his concern was, was legit because when they go to Daytona uh, for the race, for their debut in North America, it's just a terrible fit. The car just, you know, the gearbox breaks on the car over oh, and no. over again. It was just a disaster. Yeah. I mean, they started out, they were winning the race at one point early on, but it's 24 hours. And pretty soon, these problems start to manifest with the car, and then the cars are just in and out of the garage the whole time. So they have to go go back after this race, you know, to Dearborn to figure out what what the heck happened. And as it turns out, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it wasn't a technically insurmountable problem or anything or anything like that. And they were really reassured about that. But I talked to Dave Parasak, who who was the main guy, kind of you know, running both the development of the car and the racing program, and who had been in charge of Mustang. That's how he got the job. Sort of re, uh, the uh, the redesign of Mustang in 2015, uh, and Dave was just—you uh, could just tell—he was—he was struggling. 
at that point. You know, he didn't know how things were going to turn out. He was probably, you know, a, a bit ashamed that the card performed so poorly in its much ballyhooed debut. Um, and then it became a process of them just starting to figure out how to race the car, how to fix it, how to get everything right. And um, we already knew it was fast. What we knew from Daytona, which is a fast track, is that the car could go really fast. And that's going to be a good thing in um, in Le Mans because you've got to have a fast car to win Le Mans. So I kept you know, in touch with the racing team and they started to turn it around and they eventually started to win some races and they were running on two continents. So they were running in North America and they were also running in um, Europe. So the IMSA series here in, in the, uh, the U S and what's called the WEC or world endurance championship in, in uh, Europe. And the two teams were going to come together as four cars in total for Le Mans. So I kept track of what was going on and they had some races in Florida and they had some races in California. And then over in Europe, they had some races in, you know, Belgium and, and, and England um, and and then finally, I went over to uh, to Le Mans to see that spectacle, which is just crazy. It's like Burning Man for for for, uh, for race car fans. Like people come and they camp out for the whole time, and it's it's just a it's a giant. It's a there's a car it's a carnival atmosphere, and quite a lot of. Um, consumption of uh, adult beverages. Describe a little bit more and and about your your uh, participation there, at least your observation there. I I think you had mentioned you stayed in your car. I did. I did. (laughs) What I found from uh, doing two 24-hour races for the book was that it makes a lot more sense just to stay at the race and tough it out because getting in and out of these venues is really difficult. Like getting into Daytona and getting to the media center at Daytona to cover that race took me like two and a half hours. Mm. You know, so I just said, I'm not, I'm not even going to try to get out of here and go to a hotel. I'm just going to sleep in the car. And what you wind up doing anyway is, you know, it's, it, you're wired, you're excited about what's going on. You're trying to keep track of the race. And, uh, you know, so I just, I went at Daytona, I went back to my car and went to sleep for, you know, three or four hours in the middle of the night and, you know, got back up to watch the conclusion of the race. Uh, at Le Mans, I had this kind of more interesting experience because I stayed in Paris with some friends uh, who we knew from Los Angeles who had moved, some French folks who had moved back to France. So I stayed with them for a couple of days and then I had rented a little Renault kind of SUV to drive around in. So I drove that down to uh, Le Mans, which is about two hours southwest of uh, Paris. And once I, and it, again, it took me about two hours to get in there and just find a place to park the car. And once I got the car parked, I went over, I got my, you know, credentials taken care of. I got situated in the media center. I started to watch the race. And then I just said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm just staying here, right? I'm just going to go sleep in the car again. Um, so I, 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 altogether, I spent 48 hours um, at the race, so two whole days, right? And wow. I didn't really sleep. The, the while the race was going on but the night before the race started um so i'd gone, gone in to interview a few folks and the night before the race started i, I you know i'm not going to go to a hotel i'm going to go back and sleep in my car i go back to my car and in the parking lot and there are these what i would describe as like french there are these very offbeat french dudes who have i think the only pickup truck <laughs> in the area you know right like a big american pickup truck and they've got a little barbecue going, you know, like a little, they're cooking some stuff and enjoying their adult beverages and everything's just going, going crazy. And, uh, and I come walking over there and they say hi to me and I think, oh Jesus, this is going to be, this could be, you know, kind of awkward and weird if they're really like 
drunk and <laughs> I, didn't the, sure. I didn't know what the conversations were going to be like, you know, but they're really friendly. And, uh, and then it turns out that they just love America. They love it. And they wanted to know where I was from. And I told them I was from, you know, New Jersey and they said, no, they didn't know. And I said, New Jersey, you know, USA. And they said, and they start getting, they start doing a USA chant, you know, <laughs> and, and they talk about, they look at my car and tell me what a piece of garbage the Renault is, you know, and that what I really need is a Cadillac, you know, and then this is when it gets really crazy because this one dude, uh, and so it turns out that they have gone to America. They've gone and seen NASCAR races and they're just, they're just having a great, great time, you know, being, uh, fans of the USA. And then one, this one dude has, um, so he comes up to me at one point and he starts talking about Cadillac and he, and he, and he, he loves Cadillac so much. He pulls up his shirt and he's got the Cadillac badge tattooed on his chest. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right. It's wow. on the Cadillac badge <laughs> on his chest. Oh, but he's modified it. It's not just the Cadillac badge. It's the Cadillac badge with like the great seal of the United States. <laughs> With, with the eagle and everything, you know, and you know, I think in the in the actual seal it has arrows in one hand, yeah, and yeah. wheat in the other, mm-hmm. you know. He's changed that so in one in one talon the the eagle has a uh, uh, like a survival knife, a serrated survival <laughs> knife, and the other hand it's got uh, a machine gun. And he points to it and he says to the serrated knife, Rambo. And then he points to the machine gun and he says, commando. So he's got Stallone on one side and Schwarzenegger on the other side. And then the bald eagle and the Cadillac badge. I was just like, and everybody asked me, did you take a picture of this? And I always say, I don't know. I just thought the better. Yeah. (laughs) So so did they share their their barbecue? Did they share their cookout? Yeah, they invited me to hang out with them. And I I was really wiped out at that point. So I just got in my car and went to sleep. And and, and, and the funny thing was, I kept thinking they were going to get kicked out of there because they were partying so hardy. But it it turns out that they were local guys and they knew all the security people. And the security people kept coming over and hanging out with them and smoking (laughs) cigarettes and stuff, you know. And then I woke up the next day and they were all ready to go to the race and like you know just packing up the truck amazing yeah yeah so take us to the race uh and the final moments well you know it there were two pretty, pretty critical moments actually because there were as you might expect there were some mechanical problems with the cars but ford had four gt race cars at the race uh so they came in heavy they came in heavy they had a lot of cars and they were gonna you know try to uh covered their bases as far as having a couple of cars break down. They had a, 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 an immediate mechanical problem with one of the cars uh, at the beginning of the race, but they still had three left. And then in the middle of the night, they had a weird, fluky electrical system problem with one of the other cars. Uh, so I'm sorry, you could swap cars. Well, they're, the... they're running four cars the mm. whole time, right? right? So other, uh, like Corvette Racing, for example, was running two cars, mm. you know? Uh, Ferrari had, Ferrari did not have a factory-supported team, but they had what are called privateer teams, so sort of like freelance teams that are running Ferrari cars and they had three cars altogether, but two of them dropped out. So Ford was coming in with sort of strength in numbers, but they still had issues with two of the cars. It's basically just increasing your odds, right? Yeah. And they had done that in 66 too. I think they came with six cars in wow. 66 when they won. Yeah. So it's they were just not... a huge investment. Oh yeah. It's, it's enormously expensive. It's just throwing money at it. Wow. Yeah. And they wouldn't tell me how much. I was going to ask. And I asked a bunch of times. I'm sure. Know. Yeah. I mean, I would just, you know, highly speculatively estimate that they spent several billion dollars uh, over the course of, you know, a couple of years to develop a race car and a road car and to mount, mount a racing effort wow. on two continents. But, um, you know, the, the race goes on for a while. Uh, you know, it's 24 hours, so you're keeping track of what's going on uh, in terms of lead changes and stuff like that. And Ferrari and Ford pretty well identified themselves as being the ones to beat right away, which makes sense because they're, you know, high horsepower 
600-ish horsepower uh, mid-engine race cars, and they were uh, they were the fast cars on the Mulsanne Strait, which is this three and a half mile stretch of the the, the circuit, the Circuit de la Sauve, as it's called. Uh, it's a combination of a race, a small race course, and a bunch of public roads that they turn into uh, the larger circuit for the for the race. Uh, so at about so Ferrari and Ford are are, are duking it out for the uh, for the for the lead and Ferrari is is winning uh, the race and the guy named Joey Hand who was a race car driver who I talked to a lot for the for the book, um, he, he he his boss Dave Parasek says uh, he he says to Joey before Joey gets in the car to go out for a stint he says go get him Joey, and Joey looks back at Parasek and he says that's the plan boss, and he gets in the car and he runs down the Ferrari. And at 10.30, about 10.30 in the morning on Sunday, he executes the pass that will put Ford in the lead, and they stay in the lead for uh, the rest of the race. Um, but it's still, you know, a nail-biter because Ferrari's fighting like crazy. I mean, they've got awesome drivers and a great car, and they're not just going to give them the race. You know, right. so they're really hanging in there and fighting. Tough for Ferrari because you've got Ford in the lead, and then you've got two uh, Ford GTs behind you. Mm. So they're kind of sandwiched in between... Uh, the Ferrari car is sandwiched in between all these Ford cars. So it's tough to run second in a race because you've got to run down the guy who's in front of you, who's leading the race. So you can be leading the race and you've got to fight off the cars behind you, you know? And so you have, it's a real multitasking challenge for the driver who's, who's running second. Um, but you know, at about, I don't know, you know, right. A couple hours before the conclusion of the race, I'm looking at Ford. I'm looking at how, you know, Ferrari's just doesn't seem to have the speed to, to get there to pass them. Uh, and take over the lead again, and I start thinking, I, you know, I think I think they could actually win. Ford could actually win the race. Fifty years after they won in 1966, this is this is. I started to feel pretty good at that point because when we started the book, we had no idea right. whether they yeah, were going to win. Gamble. And I had talked to a bunch of people in the auto industry about the you know the book I was writing, and they would all tell me, "Well, those Ford guys, they think they're going to come in there and do so great, but I mean, it's their first year, mm. and they don't realize they're going up against Corvette racing. Corvette racing had won the class that uh, the Ford GT was racing in uh, the previous year. Very experienced team, very experienced drivers. Aston Martin was in there." obviously Ferrari and also Porsche and you know hardly they're not slouches at this thing right? <laughs> right. I mean they know what they're doing um, so it started to feel like wow I've got a storybook ending for, for this book quite literally and uh, uh, and I, there's a moment in the book where you know I was trying to be scrupulously objective throughout the process and not really root for anybody and I was reporting on Ferrari I was reporting on the, you know some of the other uh, players in the, in, the, in the space Corvette Ferrari particularly um, but I'm walking back to the media center after having talked to some folks at Ford, and I'm thinking, I, I want them to win. I want them to win. You know, this will be this. Is, I like, sort of in the book I talk about how I sort of like sacrificed my objectivity at that point for the sake of narrative, right? You know, for a great ending. So. But you're not going to tell us how it <laughs> came out. We got to read the book. No, no, no. They won. <laughs> Ford won. I mean, that's the thing. That's what's so remarkable about, about this, you know, is they really, they pulled it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I mean, it was, you know, it's one of those moments in your life and in sports where you think, boy, it's just, they, they, everything was so, everything was, went so wrong with the debut of the race cars back in January. And there was this whole dramatic saga. It's very emotional. Just the emotional expenditure, the, the amount of investment that people were putting into it at Ford at just every level you could tell was immense. 
and to have it all come to the big shot. Now, this is only the halfway point of the racing season, too. So that after Le Mans, they've got a whole bunch of other races to run. But the Le Mans, the, the, you know, the big dance. Right. And they come in there and, you know, everything that we thought the car could do, it could do. Right. And obviously, it had won some races at that point. They had, the team had won some races. So we knew the car was a pretty good car. We knew the racing team, the race car drivers are great drivers. Uh, but, I mean, you know, it, it, they were really bucking the odds here to be able to do it after having not really run a car at Le Mans for a long time. To come back to Le Mans, first racing season, win the race, repeat history. It just, you know, you just, you just can't believe it. Yeah. We've been talking with Matthew DeBoard, and you can find his book, Return to Glory, in stores right now. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure indeed. Thank you, guys. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot recaps Book Expo and BookCon. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kim Phillipsine, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about what went down at Book Expo and BookCon. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hello, Jim. It's always nice to have you here. So um, we're all, we've got the shadows under our eyes that say <laughs> another Book Expo and BookCon has come and gone. Um, what, what were some of the high points for you? Uh, the high points. Well, I think everybody will uh, acknowledge that Hillary Clinton's uh, turnout was very impressive. She was there uh, Thursday evening for an, an hour interview with Cheryl Strayed. Um, they talked about politics, um, what she likes to read, and her upcoming new book. Which, which is still untitled. Which is still untitled, Mark, <laughs> as you very well know. But she did say that uh, it will provide a really unvarnished view of what I think happened in the election. Wow. So um, I'm sure it's going to be a, uh, a hot topic when it comes out in sometime in the fall, maybe October. Or, I think it's, a, yeah, mid-October. Right. So she was, yep. certainly, she was certainly a big draw. Um, you know, standing room only crowd. So you know, lots of press there. So that's what, you know, BEA at its best can really be about um, right. getting, but I mean, her book probably doesn't need much buzz, right. but it does help get buzz, get a lot of media there and to talk up books. But this year, as I think we talked about, you know, before the show started, Reed Expo, who does put on the show, tried something a little different with BookCon in particular, and the two big changes they made were the show floor, instead of being open for three days, was only open to two. And that met with some mixed reactions, one could say. And it looks like Reed's going to be, we just talked to uh, some of their execs uh, the other day, and they're going to be, you know, they do a good job in reaching out to the, the exhibitors and see what they thought about it. So I guess there's a possibility that they could go back to either two and a half or three days. But, you know, that's, that's down the road. Well, it was. It did seem uh, there was less traffic uh, uh, on the floor, um, or at least it seemed. Well, 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 that was the other one of their innovations, if you will. You know, they it was a smaller show by design, and that right. because they wanted to um, cut out some of the people who don't buy books, and that by that I mean like mm. the professional book buyers. They you know they want. They want as many booksellers, librarians, retailers as they can get there, mm-hmm. but they don't want consultants and bloggers who they felt, and I think the exhibitors told them this, that you know, they were kind of 
getting in the way of the booksellers and librarians who they wanted to uh, do more one-on-one interaction with. So from that end, I mean, they drew about 7,400 of those type of people we just mentioned, including some media members. Mm-hmm. And Reed said they were happy with that number. And there's nothing really to compare to in previous years because this was sort of, we said, sort of a new category and they deliberately eliminated um, some other people who they would have let attend in, in past years just in some ways just to get the numbers up. Right, right. So that was uh, Book Expo. And then we had BookCon... Two days of BookCon right after. Two days of BookCon. Two days of BookCon is uh, an exciting period if you're, a, if you're a millennial or a female. 83% of the people who attended BookCon were uh, women. Mm-hmm. So um, that's sort of where the demographic has been ever since they started it. I think we've mentioned in the past that it's been going on for four or five years now, depending on how you want to count things. And they were shocked that than the first one when it skewed so young. Mm. And they expected a lot of women to come. But, um, you know, it's really the, the 16 to 30-ish uh, demographic that's really been driving it. Although they said, you know, millennials are about 56% of the attendance this year, which they thought was actually good in showing some signs of diversification. Mm-hmm. And I definitely, when I was walking around the floor at BookCon, um, it seemed visually like a very ethnically diverse crowd as well. It, it just looked like they'd drawn in a lot of folks from a lot of different walks of yeah. life. I, yeah, you know, that's a good point, Rose. What did you think of BookCon? I had a really good time. Um, I was on a panel for uh, the uh, PW's Book Life team put on with Ingram Spark of advice for indie authors, self-publishing authors. And uh, we had a really good time, a good turnout. Um, People asked great questions. There were definitely a lot of people there whose questions were along the lines of, well, can you help me fix what's wrong with my book? And we generally tried to steer those off to the side. But um, there was uh, some good general questions about, uh, I was talking about how to find a freelance editor. Um, And one thing I noticed uh, when I asked, you know, how many of you consider yourselves small business owners? Nearly every hand went up. Oh, that's good. Um, So these these are not, you know, naive authors who just think that um, they can finish a manuscript and mm. and and put it from Microsoft Word to Kindle in, <laughs> in one day. Um, yeah, these were people who were thinking about investing in their books and really being publishers for their books, That's which is um, an attitude that I really support. That's right. a great question, yeah. too, Rose, that, that you had asked. Well, because um, having been a freelance book editor... I know that a, a lot of people who wanted my services would get sticker shock. And so I wanted to be very clear about how much it costs to hire a professional and to say, if you're approaching this as a business, ideally you have a business plan and you're thinking about how you're investing money and hoping to get a return. Um, but uh, really people didn't need very much prodding in that direction at all. I, I was quoting numbers and they were just writing down those numbers. So wow. um, it was, it was really clear that these were people who had thought a lot about the business of self-publishing and were very serious about it. It was great. Yeah, that's great good. Crowd. I think that shows how self-publishing has, actually has evolved a bit. Yeah, too. absolutely. Instead of just... I think a couple you know, years ago, I would have met with a very different response. Right. And, and right. those are, I know, I know offense intended to these people, but those are the people Reed was trying to get off of the regular show floor because... Sure. And we've all had experiences. People say, hey, I've got my book. And if you're a shit, the last thing you want to look at is somebody you never heard of and, and look at their book. Um, right. But, you know, 
the intertwining of BookCon and Book Expo did cause a few wrinkles in that, um, you know, the, sh the show floor is laid out, as we all know, um, and there's a divide between the, the exhibitors that are going to stay for the four days and the exhibitors are only there for Book Expo. Um, now, since all the most of the major trade houses and all the big five publishers are all in BookCon, um, that was by far <laughs> the busiest area when Book Expo was going on. Right. Mm. Um, so I think some exhibitors who were aware of that um, did decide that you have to pay more because you had to pay for the four days, but they thought it was worth it to stay there. So you know, the ramification was that, as, as we alluded to, uh, the people who were further away from this area um, behind the remainders uh, <laughs> had noticeably less traffic than the people who were in sort of the main, the main section of it all. But the other thing is when BookCon came around, since BookCon is really an obvious and very fiction-oriented, um, a lot of the smaller non-fiction-focused publishers just left. So you, you would walk by and you would see, you know, a number of um, stands that were just empty. Mm. And, you know, that's one thing that in talking to the Reed folks, you know, they did realize that, and as, as they said, the last thing they really want to see is, you know, vacant booths right. during BookCon. So, um, you know, we'll see how they can, can make that work out. But all in all, you know, the Reed guys did acknowledge that, look, you know, we tried something a little different. Um, they were encouraged how it went. And they also know that they're going to make some changes uh, for 2018, which we're starting to count down uh, starting today. And 2018 is still in New York? Still in New York, still the same format. Right. Three days of Book Expo and two days of... Um, BookCon. BookCon. And the three days, Mark, I saw you look at me. Yes, yeah. Three, <laughs> that that <laughs> Wednesday <laughs> did count, even though all, all it had was panels right. and right. some lunches right. in it. Right, that right. Did count. <laughs> and, and what were some of the highlights for you, Mark? You know, it, it, it was interesting that because there was a little bit less traffic, I, I ended up talking to more publishers than I right. normally would. Uh, so I, I think that was I think that was it. Um, I could see the books a little bit better. I could talk to people a little bit more. Yeah, that's and then, you know that's their goal. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, there was at one point just having people come to have people come to make it look crowded. To make it look crowded to yeah. to to show numbers. Right. And yeah. Sell some. Yeah. Day passes and that sort right. of thing. So. Right. So you know. I've been going to the show for a long time, and one of the frustrating things is at least half your conversations at BEA or Book Expo is like, well, what do you think of the show? Right. <laughs> so, that's always been the, right. Is so that what it's you're like, saying? how about if we can say something else about, oh, you right. know, we're getting good traffic, it, people are loving this particular book or right. something like that, or, you know, other than, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. But people are always going to talk about the weather. Yeah, yes, they are. Yeah, this <laughs> is true. This is true. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Always great to have you on the show, and we'll have you back in a year to recap 2018. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. 
Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 